Job chapter 29. Job chapter 29, looking at Job's rebuttal of Bildad in exactly all the things that he says. And he speaks for six chapters in, in our Bible. Now, it's not meant to be that which is entertaining because as we go through all these discussions with Job and his friends, none of them are really entertaining. But the Bible's not meant to entertain you. It's meant to enlighten you. It's meant to equip you. It's meant to edify you. It's meant to build you up. That's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, that it's the Word of God that instructs us and, and builds us and makes the man of God thoroughly furnished unto all good deeds. And so everything that's in the book of Job, everything that's in the Scriptures, is designed to enlighten us as to the character and nature of God, all that He is and how He works in and through the lives of people. And our God is a great and awesome God. And we told you as we go through this book, we marvel at Job's endurance. The Bible tells us that we are to consider the endurance of Job, the, the patience of Job. And when you think about that, you, we marvel at this man's ability to bear up under pressure, under difficulty, under hardship, under affliction, under mental and verbal abuse from his so-called friends. He bears up under all that, and we sit back and we marvel at the man's ability to do so. But there's a reason why he can. There's a reason why he's able to do all that. And we told you at the very beginning in Job chapter 1, verse number 1, which is the key to all that Job does, is that he was a man of supreme integrity. He was a man who feared God. He was a man who turned away from evil. He was a man who was blameless and upright. And we told you from the very outset that everything that centers around Job stems from that. Because amidst all the the things that happened to Job, amidst all the discouragement, amidst all the dis disappointment, he has never gone down to defeat. And the reason is, is because of the courage and conviction of his character. Character is everything. Character is the only thing that counts. It's the only thing that really truly matters. And because of the character of this man's life, he was courageous, and he was able to maintain his convictions, no matter what the circumstances before him. And so we told you Job 1, verse number 1, was the key to how Job would, would respond to everything in his life. And so last week we told you in Job chapter 27, what does it say? Verse number 5, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. And we told you last week, the book begins with a man of supreme integrity. But that never changes amidst all of his adversity. No. In fact, it shines even greater all the more amidst his adversity. Because everything about the man stems from his character, who he is, his complete trust in the Almighty God. But he was a man of supreme character, a man of supreme integrity. And once you have integrity, you maintain that, and that's what how, how Job was able to handle every conflict that came his way. It was a great uh, late Alan Simpson, who was a, a senator uh, from Wyoming from 1979 to 1997, who said these words. He said, if you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Because the only thing that matters is integrity. That's all that matters. Everything stems from that. 
And so therefore you must understand that Job was a man who lived in light of his relationship with the living God. So we told you from the outset that if you understand Job 1.1, you understand how Job handled all the affliction, all the discouragement, all the verbal abuse, everything that came his way, he was able to withstand it. That's why he was able to endure because of his character. And God had done a great and mighty work in his life. So Job, as he responds in chapter 29, he's going to talk about his past. In chapter 30, he's going to talk about his present. And in chapter 31, he's going to talk about his future. So here's your three-point outline. Very simple. Job chapter 29 is Job's reflection on his past glory. Job's reflection on his past glory. In chapter 30, it's about Job's reiteration of his present misery. In chapter 31, it's about Job's reaffirmation of his personal integrity. There's your three-point outline, right? Each chapter has a point behind it, and each chapter unfolds for us Job's commitment on how he rebuffs all that Bildad has said to him. And when it's all said and done, in chapter 31, verse number 40, it says, and the words of Job are ended. Now, his friends have already stopped speaking. That's a good thing. We were tired of hearing them speak anyway. So was Job. But now Job's going to be done after this. Come on the scene, Nix is Elihu. God will interrupt him. God himself will speak. And Job will be blessed at the end. And so we begin in chapter 29, verse number 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said. Now, it's almost as if there's a pause between chapter 28 and 29. As if he's waiting for them to respond. I mean, after all, they've responded to everything else he said. So certainly they're going to respond now. Certainly they're going to say something now, but they don't. They're done speaking. And you'd think they'd have some kind of of comeback, some kind of argument, because all they can think of is that, Job, you're wicked. Job, you have secret sin. That's why you are in the condition you are in. That's what we've said to you the whole time. But Job's waiting for a response, but no response. So he picks up the discourse, and he goes back and talks about his past glory. Listen to what he says. Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head and his light, I walked through darkness. And by his light, I walked through darkness. As I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out of me streams of oil. He's reflecting on his past. He's reflecting when the Almighty was obviously present among him. You know those times, times where where things seem to be going so good that, that you can almost smell the presence of God in your home. And God is among him. And the Almighty was there. The Almighty, he says, protected him, watched over him. It's not like God wasn't protecting him now. God was still protecting him. Remember back in chapter 1? What did Satan say? Well, Job is the way he is because you protect him. 
That's why he's a man of integrity. That's why he's blameless. So Satan blamed God for Job's integrity. And so God said, you can do anything you want. Just can't touch his, touch his life. Can't touch Job. So Satan did. But he was under God's protection. Even Satan knew that. Job understood his, the protection of God. He knew that God was his rock, that God was his refuge, that God was his bulwark, that God was his shield. He knew that. And the Almighty was among him and protected him. He sat back and, and watched his children grow and play. And he saw how, how God had blessed him immensely in the words like, uh, his steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. All speak of the goodness and blessing of God. That's all he could see. So he says, when I went out to the gate, verse 7 of the city, when I took my seat in the square, in other words, he was a leader among the people. The young men saw me and hid themselves. And the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to their palate. In other words, Job comes into the room and everything goes quiet. When Job walks in, when Job shows up, everybody stops talking. No one else has anything to say because Job is the wise man. Job was the greatest man in the East. Talk about honor and respect. It was everywhere. It oozed out of his being. So when he walked into the room, when he walked into the, the place of leadership, everybody stopped speaking. Men stood up in his presence because Job was there. Job's reflecting on all of his past glory. It says in verse 11, For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me. In other words, everyone saw him. Everyone stood in awe of him, mainly because, not just because he was a wealthy man. He was a wise man. Not just because God had blessed him, but he was, as not the text says in chapter 1, the greatest man in the East. So it says in verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. Think about this. This is Job. And the orphan who had no helper, the blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. In other words, he says, I wrapped myself in, in, in truth and in righteousness, and everything was, was, was done in a just and holy way. He says in verse number 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. So when the blind couldn't see, he led them. When the lame couldn't walk, he helped them. He says in verse number 16, I was a father to the needy. And I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. In other words, I stood for no evil. None whatsoever. And everybody knew it. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters. The dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. He speaks of his strength. He speaks of the fact that, you know what? Everything is good. And you ever been in those places where you say, you know what? This is the perfect day. It's the, it's the perfect moment. And everything is well. The kids are healthy. Uh, there's money in the bank. And, and the job is going well. I've got lots of friends. My ministry at church is great. And you just take a deep breath and say, wow, life is good. That was Job. 
Life was great for Job. Verse 21, to me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. People came to me and wanted to have counsel. And they would sit and listen. Wait for me to speak. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. In other words, when Job would speak, it was such refreshment to their soul. I smiled on them when they did not believe in the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. That's what Job's life was like. That was his past life. That was his everyday life. Great respect, great honor. He was able to understand the presence of God among him. Everything he touched, everything he did, spoke of nobility and beauty and glory. He's reflecting on his past glory. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong in looking back and seeing how things were, how things are, what's happening, and see all the blessings of God upon his life because they were everywhere. So when Job looked at his past, there was a reflection on his past glory. But now there's going to be a reiteration of his present misery. Look what it says in chapter 30, verse number 1. But now, all those great butologies of Scripture, the great contrast, but now, things have changed. Things are completely different than they ever were before. But now, those younger than I mock me. I want you to know something as we read chapter 30. He's going to say, there is no honor, there is no health, there is no help, and there is no hope. That's his present condition. There is no longer any honor, no longer any respect. Instead of honor, there's nothing but disdain. He says, but now those younger than I, they mock me. Those who used to keep silent, when I walked into the room, no longer. Now they mock me. Whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. In other words, their fathers were not worthy to watch the dogs of my flock, and these are the children of those men who now mock me. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. They had bad work ethic. From want and famine they are gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation, who pluck mallow, By the bushes and whose food is the root of the broom shrub. They are driven from the community. They shout against them as against a thief. So they dwell in dreadful valleys, in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they cry out. Under the nettles they are gathered together. Fools, even those without a name, they they were scourged from the land. These are the outcasts. These are the rebels. These are the people nobody wanted to be around, nobody wanted to talk to. These were the complete outcasts of the community. They lived in valleys, they lived under rocks, and they were, they were dreadful individuals. And these are children who mock me. It says in verse 9, and now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me, they stand aloof from me, and they do not refrain from spitting on my face. Think about that. Job was so disdained, they would spit 
on his face. When was the last time someone spit on your face? Not because you sit down front and I spit when I speak and it comes out and hits you. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody actually spitting on your face. I mean, how, how, how bad is that? Listen to this. He says in verse 11, Because he has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off the bridle before me. On the right hand, their brood arises. They thrust aside my feet and build up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They profit from my destruction, and no one restrains them. In other words, they trip me when I walk. They put things in front of me and obstruct my, my, my ability to walk, and no one says anything to them. No one restrains them. No one says, hey, guys, leave Job alone. Don't you remember how Job used to be? Don't you remember who this guy is? Nope. Nobody stands in his defense. Nobody stands with him. Listen, the next time you think that you're lonely and all alone, think again about Job. You got a friend somewhere. You got somebody who'll talk to you on the phone. You got somebody who'll visit you. Not Job. He had no one. And remember, his wife is nowhere to be found. She speaks once and that's it. She's done. Right? She's not even there to hold his hand. No one's there except those who mock him and taunt him, trip him, put obstacles in front of him and spit in his face. So where did all the honor go? Where did the men go who stood up in his presence when he walked in? Where were all those who were wanting to listen to his counsel, hear what he had to say? If anybody could counsel you now, it's Job. I missed all of his affliction. Listen to what he has to say, but... Nobody wants to listen to him because the theology of the day is, man, you're in trouble. You are the way you are because of your sin. We want nothing to do with you. And that's what his three friends tried to say. So verse 14, as through a wide breach they come amid the tempest, they roll on. Terrors are turned against me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. There is no honor. Not only is there no honor, there is no health. There's no honor but disdain. There's no health but disease. It says, and now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me. And my gnawing pains take no rest. Can you imagine that? There is no rest to my pain. None whatsoever. You know, if, if I have a headache, I'm taking Advil, right? I'm taking Aleve. I'm taking aspirin. Those are the three, the trifecta of over-the-counter drugs, right? Advil, Aleve, and aspirin. If I'd have had three more children, that would have been their names. Advil, Aleve, and aspirin. I love those three A's. I mean, all the other seven begin with an A or eight begin with an A. The next three, they too would begin with an A, and that would be their names. That's why my, my wife said to me, no more kids, we're done. Don't want those names. But you know what? When, 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 when I go through pain, you go through pain, we just take a pill. Get a shot, right? That's what we do. Have an operation. Replace a knee. Replace a hip, Right? Have surgery. Go in. Remove what's there that's causing all the pain. Job can't do that. Job has no pills to take. He's got no doctor to visit. He's got no super medication that will ooze or relieve the, the oozing sores in his body. 
nothing, no antibiotic that's going to help take care of the problem because he's been afflicted by Satan. And Satan, Satan wants to kill him, right? He can't kill him because God said you can't do that. If Satan could kill him, he would kill him. But he can't because he doesn't hold the keys to death and Hades. Christ holds those keys. So he can't do that. So he does all he can to afflict him with the worst possible affliction. Look at verse number 18. By a great force, my garment is distorted. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. How, what does that mean? Remember, he, he, he's got all these boils all over his body. All of them are oozing pus, right? And so the nights in, in the desert are cold. And so you try to cover up something. You ever, you ever been in such pain that it, even if you put on a shirt or a jacket, the, 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 the place where there's pain, it, it hurts so bad? Well, this is Job's entire body, right? From the top of his head to the soles of his feet. But yet, to get warm, you've got to put something on him. So they put a cloak on him. And what happens is the, so, the, the sores begin to ooze. And as they ooze, they, they glop onto the garment. And the garment then becomes dry and crusted because of the pus of the boils. And it begins to stick to his body and become distorted on his body like a choking collar around his neck. That's what's happening to Job. You think you had a bad day? Think again. You had a great day compared to Job. And so it says in verse number 19, He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. No honor, no health. This is my present misery, as he reiterates it to these men who were before him. Next, there's no help. Verse 20, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. This is the worst kind because of the silence of God. I cry for help, but you don't answer. I'm asking for some kind of response, but there's none. And that's the most difficult thing for Job. Not to be able to receive anything from the Lord in terms of what is happening. Now he will. It's coming. Okay. Not like he would expect it to come, but it is going to come because God will always respond because that's the way God is. So he says, you have become cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride and you dissolve me in a storm for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. I know I'm going to die. I I wish it was now, it's not, but I wish it was. It's going to happen. I know what you have done. I know you're behind all this, but I have no honor, I have no health, and I have no hope. Uh, Excuse me, no help. And therefore, I have no hope. So it says in verse 24, Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand, or in his disaster Therefore, cry out for help. Have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Sure it was. Remember we said that we saw the blind man? He helped the blind man cross the street. Saw the lame man? He helped him walk. Saw the orphan? Took care of him. Fed him. Saw the widow? Took care of her so she would rejoice. So he says, wait a minute. Is there, is there no one to reciprocate? 
Is there no one there to, to come along? It's not that he was doing things the way he did so someone would repay him one day. That wasn't the point. He's just asking, is there not someone to reciprocate the things I did for them? Have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Who's not my, or was not my soul grieved for the needy? When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I'm seething, I'm boiling within, and cannot relax. In other words, I am so much pain. I am, I am seething on the inside out. I am boiling over with pain. That's what the text means. He says, the days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly, and I cry out for help. I have become to a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black on me. My bones burn with fever. Therefore, my harp is tuned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of those who weep. This is present misery. Pretty descriptive. It's almost as if he pauses, thinking that at least one of the three will reach out with their hand and comfort him. Maybe say a word of encouragement. Having heard Job reiterate his past misery or his present misery, you you would think that they would somehow have empathy and compassion for the man. Yeah, Job, I, I know that you were honored before and there is no honor now. You're completely disdained. I, I know that you, you were healthy once, but now you're not healthy and there's nothing but a disease. I know that once you help people, but now there is no help because now you have disfavor instead of favor. We know, Job, that you have no hope and you are completely dismayed. But Job, let let us come alongside of you. Let us pray with you. Let us let us sit with you, and and be for you what we can be. <laughs> Not on your life. These guys were so bitter, so angry, so frustrated with Job, because they. They could not convince him that he was a sinful, wretched man. That's why he was going through what he went through. It's almost as if they sit back and say, what do you want us to do, Job? You made your bed, now sleep in it. You are the way you are because of your sin. We told you, Job. Don't cry to us that you have no help or health or hope. Don't cry to us. This is what you, this is what you deserve. In essence, that's what they're doing by not responding. They say nothing. So, Job, having a reflection upon his past glory and a reiteration of his present ministry or misery, is now is now going to have a reaffirmation of his personal integrity. He's going to reaffirm his commitment. He's going to voice his stand on his integrity because that's where he's going. He's not going to compromise it. He's going to stand on it because that's who he is. So he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin or look lustfully upon a woman? And what is the portion of God from above? 
or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? God knows what I'm doing. God understands everything that I'm saying, everything that I see. And I have made a covenant with my eyes not to ever look lustfully upon a woman. That's where he begins. As he reaffirms his integrity, he's going he's to deal with the heart of a man. Right? What did Christ say in, in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5? Right? That a man who, who looks lustfully upon a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. Because it's the heart that determines the direction of the eyes. And so he says, I made a covenant with my eyes. I made a commitment. Never to look lustfully upon a woman. He says, there's no deceit in my life. He says in verse 5, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Again, he's going to emphasize his integrity. And all throughout chapter 31, he says, look, if I do this, I know the consequences. And if I'm doing this, this needs to happen to me. He's not afraid of the consequences because he knows that he's a man of integrity. He knows that he's not going to hurt other people. He knows he ha- doesn't have some kind of secret sin that he's hiding from anybody. So he says these words, If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck in my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. I have not turned aside from the way. The way of what? The way of righteousness, the way of holiness, the way of the upright, the blameless way. I have not turned aside away from the commands of God. I have not turned aside away from from the things that God has put before me. I'm a man of my integrity. There's not deceit in my mouth. There there is nothing that's going to deter me from following the commands of God because I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. So he says, verse 9, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. He knows about adultery. He knows why it's wrong. He understands the punishment and penalty for those who, who commit adultery. And he says in verse number 13, if I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves, when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when, when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? In other words, he says, look, my slaves, I am not better than them. We are, we are all fashioned in the same womb. We are all made in the image of God. I am not better than my servants. Even though he had many servants, they were all dead. And yet he was one who said, I'm not above them. I'm not better than they are. He admits that he is one with them. Not above them. A very humble man. He says, if I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eye of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. But from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, 
and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of his majesty I can do nothing. In other words, listen, if I see someone in need and I don't meet that need, may I just be torn apart. If I see an orphan who needs food and I don't feed him, if I see an individual who needs clothing, I, I don't clothe them, if I see a widow in distress and don't help her, then you know what? May I be torn from limb to limb because that would be the punishment I deserve. Verse 24. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going, to splen- going in splendor or my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. He says, listen, I'm not a covetous person. I'm not an idolater. That's not what I do. And remember, Job was a wealthy man. He had all kinds of money, all kinds of goods. He had it all. But he's making He's sharing a testimony as the fact that I don't trust the gold. I never did. It was something that God gave me, but I didn't put my trust in it. I I wasn't an idolater. I didn't worship anything else other than the one true God. That's my life. Verse 29, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Even though those, those, those children of the, of the men I detest who spit in my face and trip me when I walk, I'm not asking for a curse upon them. I'm not doing that. He says, have the men of my tent not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. I've been kind to those who are passing by. I've been kind to those who are strangers. I've taken them into my home. Have I covered my transgression with like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Remember, everything was about you have a secret sin, Job. You're not being honest with yourself, Job. You're hiding something from us, Job. Job says, I'm not like Adam. I didn't try to hide from God. I don't have some kind of secret sin. He says this, because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors. In other words, because of the multitude and because of the mockery, people conceal their sins. I didn't do that. I have nothing to hide. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. He can approach God because he's innocent. He has no secret sin. He's not afraid. 
If my, hand, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars grow instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. And the words of Job are ended. What a statement. His past, his present, and his future. This is who he is. A man of absolute supreme integrity. I wonder tonight if you'd be able to reaffirm your integrity. Because of your commitment to the, to the Lord God of Israel. I wonder if you live a life like Job. It was because of his integrity he could endure all that he did. He wasn't some special supernatural superhero that allowed him to endure all of his affliction like nobody else would ever be able to do it. No, he was a man of integrity. So how do you become that way? How do you do that? Years ago, my father-in-law is here tonight, John and I worked on, a, on an outline that would deal with integrity. It was probably 20 years ago now. But we've shared it many times over and over again because it's so important. Because I want you to be a man or a woman of integrity. I want you to be able to follow in the footsteps of Job. So let me explain it to you. If you want to be a man or woman of integrity, you must install Christ as your chief priority. You must install Christ as your chief priority. Everybody in the room has a priority. Evidently, you made tonight a priority. Those who are not here had other priorities. Correct? Something else was more important to them than being here. For you, the most important thing for you was to be here. It was your priority. To be a man or woman of integrity, you must install Christ as your chief priority. And all of us have priorities. We prioritize everything throughout the day. We wake up, we prioritize the day. We think of the week, we prioritize the week. All right? We think of going to work. What's going to be the priority at work? That I, the things I'm going to get done first. What's the priority? Listen, if Christ is not your priority, something else is your priority. Christ needs to be the chief priority priority of your life. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Everything, everything about my life is about Christ. I'm going to live for Christ. When I die, it will be gain. But while I'm on this planet, I'm living for Christ. Is that your prayer? Is that your desire? Is he your chief priority? Have you installed him to the highest position? I love what it says over in, in uh, Psalm, Psalm 90, 93. When it says these words, I'm sorry, Psalm 97, my bad. Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. Verse 9, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth, you are exalted above all gods. He is El Elyon, the most high God. If we don't see him as such in our lives, then something else takes priority. 
And I wonder if you could say tonight with a clear conscience that Christ is your chief priority. That's, what, that's why the Bible in five times talks about one thing. When in Luke 10, when, when Christ told, told Martha, oh, Martha, Martha, there, 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 is, there is one thing that's needful. And Mary has chosen that one thing that's needful. What was that one thing that's needful? Absolute, undivided attention to hearing the word of God. That was the one thing. To the rich ruler, he said, there's one thing you lack. One thing you lack. What did the rich young ruler lack? Adoration for God. Complete and total adoration. He had another God. It was his money. He didn't adore God. He adored his money. But there's one thing you lack, and the one thing you lack is that you don't adore me. You adore something else. Something else is your chief priority. Something's more important to you than me, and it can't be that way if you're going to follow me. One thing is needful, complete and total, undivided attention to God. One thing you lack, and that is unparalleled adoration for God. And then you have that man born blind in John 9. What did he say? One thing I know. And the one thing I know is the only thing you need to know. And that was the undeniable affirmation of the deity of Christ. There's one thing I know. One thing. There's one thing you lack. There's one thing that's needful. And then over in in Philippians 3, Paul says, there's one thing I do. One thing. Not many, just one. I press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, there is a total uninhibited ambition to follow as God. And then over in Psalm 27, there's one thing I desire that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. What was the one thing that he desired? Unending anticipation of the beauty of God. All of those individuals needed to understand that Christ had to be the chief priority in their lives. In order to be a man or woman of integrity, you must install Christ as your chief priority. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary to Christ. Everything. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. Christ is my life. Colossians chapter 3. Is Christ your life? Have you installed him as your chief priority? It's not that you don't want him to be a priority. You, you just... You just Go through each day and, and something becomes so important it becomes a priority and, and Christ is set aside. And then the next day and something else becomes a priority and, and Christ is set aside. And then the next thing you know, the next day something else becomes a priority. And the next thing you know, Christ is number 10 and 12 and 13 and 14 on the list. And then you, you stop going to Bible study. You stop going to church and something else becomes a priority on Sundays. Something becomes a priority instead of spending time in the word of the Lord. Because Christ is no longer my chief priority. I see it happen all the time in the church, people's lives. Something becomes more important to them than the Lord. 
It's obvious. You can see it. Install Christ as your chief priority. Number two, nurture your own spirituality. You've got to nurture your own. Listen, if Christ is not your chief priority, you'll never nurture your spirituality. You won't. You'll nurture something else that is your priority, though, right? But you won't nurture your own spirituality. You'll nurture something else. But as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, is there that hungering and desire to be in the word of the Lord? You want to be a man of integrity, be a woman of integrity? You've got to nurture your own spirituality. You've got to practice the disciplines of the Christian life, the discipline of silence and solitude and scripture and supplication and realizing the importance of all those things because you want to, you want to get to know your God. If he's going to be your priority, you want to get to know him. You want to embrace him. You want to, you want to love him. But... That's only if you want to be a man and woman of integrity. If it's not important to you, then something else will be your priority. And whatever else is your priority, that's what you're going to nurture. But if you install Christ as your chief priority and nurture your own spirituality, you're on your way to being that man and woman of integrity. Number three, you turn away from all iniquity. Again, it all follows suit, right? If I'm not nurturing my own spirituality, I'm not turning away from anything that's iniquitous. I'm going to engage in it. But if I'm nurturing my spirituality, I'm going to turn away from all iniquity. I'm going to turn away from sin. Why? Because whatever that sin is, as Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. Why? Because he made Christ his chief priority in life. And we know he nurtured his own spirituality. Way back in Job chapter 1, he was offering sacrifices, not only on his behalf, but on the behalf of his children. It was all about growing in, in his walk with the Lord. And I marvel at a man who couldn't open his Bible and read it because he didn't have a Bible. Didn't have the books of the Bible to read. We do. We do. And what do we do? If we open it on Sunday, we're lucky. Right? But for Job... Whatever word of the Lord he knew, he held dear. But Job was one who turned away from evil. He was an upright, God-fearing man, blameless, turning away from evil. You have to turn away from iniquity. It's called the mortification of the flesh. What did Christ say? Christ say, right eye offends you, plug it out. Right hand offends you, cut it off. Do whatever you got to do to get rid of sin in your life. Spare no expense to get rid of sin in your life. That's turning away from iniquity. That's what Job did. That's why he's a man of integrity. Install Christ as your chief priority. Nurture your own spirituality. And then turn away from all iniquity. Number four, embrace all accountability. Embrace all accountability. Listen, accountability is inescapable irrefutable, and invaluable. One day, every one of us will give account to the Lord in glory. Each man will give an account of his life. Every idle word that a man speaks, he'll give an account for. Why? As Daniel said, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Daniel knew his accountability to God, the most high God. He understood that. He knew that God was his sole judge. 
And accountability stems from the fact that I have a relationship with the living God who I've installed as my chief priority, and I'm accountable to him. I'm going to embrace all accountability. I'm going to embrace accountability with my wife because she needs to know exactly what I'm doing, where I'm going, what I'm seeing, right? Because she knows me better than anybody else, right? You can lie to the guy in your accountability group. He's not going to know. What's he know? Did you look lustfully at a woman? Nope, not me, not this week. Have you embezzled any money? Nope, not me. How's he going to know? He doesn't know. But your wife does. She knows. That's why guys don't want to be held accountable to their wives. Because she knows. See? But if you want to be a man of integrity, you embrace all accountability. Accountability at church. Accountability with your, with your wife. Accountability with anybody who wants to question what is happening in your life. Because you are an open book. You want to hide nothing. What's there to hide? Unless you're sinning, right? You have nothing to hide. So you embrace all accountability. Next, you guard your heart and home against the enemy. Guard your heart and home against the enemy. What's the Bible say in the book of Proverbs? Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23. Guard your heart with all diligence. With all persistence, with all effort, with all vigilance, with all carefulness, for, for, for from it flow all the issues of life. You've got to guard your heart and home against the enemy. In other words, you are protected. You guard that which is valuable to you. You protect that which is valuable to you. Your heart is your most precious organ, Right? If it stops beating, guess what? You're dead. So you guard your heart against the, the, the enemy. You guard your home against the enemy. You guard your children from the enemy. I am so tired of parents telling me, well, you know, if I tell them this, they're going to do that. Hey, listen, if you're afraid your children are going to turn against you, they've already turned against you. They've already done it. You should never be afraid of your children. You should always tell your children what to do. I do. Still do. Right? Because they're my children. When they're wrong, you tell them they're wrong. When they're off kilter, you say, that's wrong. You're going the wrong direction. You can't do that. See, parents don't want to do that anymore. They don't want to guard their home against the enemy. But you have to. Because that's what's so important in your life. Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? If he can destroy your family, he will. So you guard your harm. You guard your heart against the enemy. As the father, if I'm not guarding my heart, I'm not going to guard my home. I'm not. But if I'm guarding my heart against the enemy, it's going to overflow into my wife and to my children because they're going to see how how I want to protect them and, and, and watch over them and care for them, that they would be nurtured spiritually. That's my responsibility. Fathers, that's your responsibility. Next, respect your ministry, testimony, and legacy. Respect your ministry, testimony, and legacy. God gives us a, a ministry. And we respect that. 
Respect it enough to realize that God has gifted you. He's gifted me. And God entrusts you with the ministry that you are to respect. Because God granted you an opportunity to serve in his kingdom. Right? So not only do you respect your ministry. And listen, if you don't have a, a ministry in the church, you've got a ministry at work. D- don't separate the sacred from the secular. Well, you know, Sunday's a sacred day and, and Monday's a secular day. Oh, no, 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 no. Your, your work is your sacred place of employment where you live to the glory of God. That's where God has called you to live out your spiritual existence. He isn't necessarily called you to live out your spiritual existence in church, although you do. You live it in the place you're employed because that's where your testimony is, right? So you respect your ministry at your workplace because that's where your testimony is and you want to respect your testimony because that is your legacy. If you don't live it, you can't leave it, so you've got to live a testimony that honors and glorifies the Lord. But do you respect it enough to do so? God granted you the opportunity. God granted you your family, your job, your ministry, your church. Everything you have, God gave you. Do you respect it enough to honor God in it? Next, identify with the godly. You've got to identify with the godly, not the ungodly. Who do you hang out with? Who do you hang around? Who do you let your kids hang out with? Do you let them hang out with the ungodly? Oh, they gotta be, they gotta be a testimony, they gotta be a mission field. Really? Really? There's gonna be a lot of time to do that. Lots of time to do that. But you gotta make sure they are equipped to do that. To be able to be that salt and light in the earth. Strong enough to stand and not be swayed by the ungodly. And therefore, you must identify with the ungodly. Psalm, Psalm 101, the psalmist said these words, which is so good. Psalm 101, the psalmist said, I'm getting there, my pages are stuck together. He said, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. He says, A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off in the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. If you could just live Psalm 101... You'd be good. You'd be good. Don't dwell with the deceitful person. Don't even let them in your house. The dishonest person. The liar. No. Don't associate with them. Associate with the godly person, the blameless person. He says, that's the person that will minister to me. The blameless one will minister to me. 
the one who has the same goals and aspirations that I do. That person will minister to me. We forget how quickly we are swayed. One sinner destroys much good. Ecclesiastes 9.18, right? Bad company will always corrupt good morals. Just does. And so you need to be able to make sure that you identify with the godly. If you're following along, we're spelling the word integrity, right? Install Christ as your chief priority. Nurture your own spirituality. Turn from all iniquity. Enter or embrace all accountability. Guard your heart and home against the enemy. Respect your ministry, testimony, and legacy. Identify with the godly. Treasure your family. Treasure your family. Job treasured his family. Loved his wife. Loved his kids. Offered sacrifices for them. He wanted to identify with the godly. He respected the ministry that God gave him, right? He was always in the process of guarding his heart and his home against the enemy. That's what we need to do. We need to make sure that we treasure our family. So many verses on this. Psalm 20, verse, uh, sorry, Proverbs 20, verse number 7. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. I wonder if you treasure your family enough to walk in integrity. Do you value them? You're supposed to treat your wife, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 7, as your most prized possession. If you don't, your prayers are hindered, hindered says, the, says the Lord. So, fellas, if you don't treat your wife as your most prized possession, your prayers just will not even pray. They're hindered. She's not number one. Well, really, number two behind the Lord. But she's not your prized possession. And you treat her as the most precious trophy in your life. Your prayers are hindered. In other words, you're sinning against the Lord. And if you regard iniquity in your heart, Psalm 66 says, the Lord will not hear you. Do you treasure your family? Treasure your wife? Treasure your children? God gave them to you. And lastly, yearn for eternity. Yearn for eternity. That's your longing. All throughout the book of Daniel, what do we tell you? The clearer you see the future, the cleaner you stand in the present. That was Daniel. He saw the future clearly. He stood clean in the present. Job, he, knew, he knows that his Redeemer will live. And one day he will stand upon the earth. Job would, would long to be with his Redeemer. He must yearn for eternity. Know that presence with Christ is everything. And if you keep your eyes focused above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, recognizing that he's coming to soon take you home to be with him. Everything on earth pales in comparison to that. This does. It's not that important anymore. But that, that's the man and woman of integrity. That was Job. So as he reaffirms his integrity, he makes a, 
a commitment to say, look, this is what I'm going to do. That's why he says, this is the word. He has nothing else to say. That's it. Why? Because if you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Why? Because the only thing that matters is whether or not you have integrity. That's it. Job did. Do you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. A chance to be in your word, a chance to study your word, a chance to understand more about how you work in the life of one man who is committed totally and completely to his God. Our prayer, Father, is that you go before us. Give us safety as we go home. May we live the rest of this week and the rest of our days on this planet for the glory of our great King. In Jesus' name, amen.